Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast, episode 80. Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Jack Mountain Bushcraft School founder and master main guide, Tim Smith. I'm your host, Tim Smith. I'm a registered master main guide and have been a full-time outdoor instructor and guide since founding the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School in 1999. We help people become more skilled, more knowledgeable, more experienced, and more confident in the natural world through our bushcraft and guide training semester programs and multi-week canoe and snowshoe expeditions. You can check out the show notes to all of our podcasts at blog.jackmtn.com. If you're interested in learning more about our college-accredited and GI Bill-approved programs, visit the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School on the web at jackmtn.com. And check out our online network and digital learning academy at bushcraftschool.com. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. For episode 80... I'm going to air an interview that I did with a student a while back at the end of a fall wilderness bushcraft semester course. There's a lot of really interesting stuff in here. I think one of the best quotes from the interview is where I quote longtime Jack Mountain instructor Ben Spencer, and I will say that in the long run, the only survival skill that really matters is our ability to get along with one another. And, you know, we talked about that at length. I uh, think we cover that in a lot of the podcasts, that that's sort of our our idea about, you know, the importance of soft skills and the importance of people skills and the importance of getting along. And this is super important, whether you're on a survival course, whether you're on a long expedition, or just trying to get by in everyday, day-to-day life. One of the other big points that I like to talk about is that you can't learn nuance from a book. And we talked about that as well, but it's kind of a long interview. I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, please leave us a comment. Thanks. And let's get to it. (laughs) Opening sound of the interview. Uh, Yeah. I learned how to do bow drills just when I was right out of college and I learned bow drills and hand drills in the same season and uh, was really drawn to the hand drill. And I think I probably, somewhere in the neighborhood, I used to do like two coals a day every day for a long time, right? So I've got somewhere in the neighborhood of like 1,500 hand drill fires um, because I just wanted, it was something that I was super motivated to do. Uh, And where I lived then in New Hampshire, it was a super viable thing. You know, mullein grew on every roadside and any of the softwoods I would have success with. Hemlock, pine, cedar, fir, you know, whatever was around. Um, And there's lots of those. So, yeah, lots and lots of hand drill fires. I think the fastest I ever got a coal with a hand drill start to finish, seven seconds. Um, And that's when I was, I was probably 28, 29 at the time, so young and strong and stupid (laughs) and now i'm old and weak and stupid uh um so yeah hand drills were something that i was super passionate about um in moving to maine and doing programs up here not as practical it's colder it's damper the materials are harder to get uh so it's something that i've struggled with here as as an everyday fire lighting thing so back to maine was sort of back to the bow drill uh 
you know, because here with the mechanical advantage of the extended length of the bow and the downward pressure of the bearing block, it's, it's just easier to get a fire under more challenging conditions with the bow drill. But I always say, you know, somebody's first friction fire, they're touching all of human history, like in a tangible manner. It is a very deep, very visceral, very meaningful experience. You know, I've seen grown men, tough men brought to tears because it's such a thing of beauty. It's so powerful when you first achieve it. Uh, and yeah, I felt that way on my first one. Um, How did you get introduced into it to start with? Uh, I mean, I had books as a kid okay, so and had seen, you know, people were doing it and, um, I don't know when I first saw it done. I, I don't recall. Did someone teach it to you or did you learn it through books? I sort of learned it through books and then being around people, you know, and then you learn it through books and you don't know and you do, you develop goofy habits and you, there's things that you just don't understand. And then you see somebody do it once and you're like, Oh, yeah, okay. I get it now. And, but with a lot of the primitive skills, that was sort of my way of learning it would be introduced through books or maybe in a movie. And then you would nerd out on that and try to learn as much as you could and then experiment. And then, you know, once you met a competent instructor or somebody who was decent at it, uh, you know, it's just like a light switch going on. There's all the little nuance. I mean, everything in, in primitive skills is nuance. So, you know, you can't learn nuance from a book. So I'm, I've i heard from you how you got introduced into primitive skills just with or how you decided to come up here and do stuff like this. Well, like we were 10 day. years into our into the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School business when we came up here. Oh, okay. so this wasn't we didn't start here. We, we did all this stuff in New Hampshire first. Gotcha. Nine years. 1999 business started. We moved up here in 2008, 2007 was when we started looking for the properties and then 2008 spring we moved them up here the long-term programs but we used to run them in new hampshire did you have a field school in new hampshire mm, we had a little field uh no you know we have an acre and a quarter of land there but we back up to like 120 square miles of woods literally on the other side of the dead end dirt road so it was we had a huge backyard i didn't pay taxes on nice <laughs> Oh, were you teaching hand drill and bow drill? Yeah, same stuff. The yeah. same, like, we started, I started Jack Mountain 1999, right when I got out of graduate school, right? Oh, okay. So I finished my master's in education, and I was going to go get a teaching job, and I said, oh, I, I knew a guy who was a main guy who had been doing it for 20 years, and I said, he makes a living like this. Maybe I'll just try doing it for, I'll try doing it for a year. You know, I wasn't married, didn't have children at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I'll try it for a year, and now it's... 21 years later and I'm still trying it so we started Jack Mountain I started Jack Mountain in 1999 and we ran the pilot program of our first semester class in 2001 so I had 99 and 2000 where we were sort of running short programs like everybody else everywhere else mm -hmm. and my friend Dan and I uh, he had a 25 or a 27 acre farm in Brunswick Maine and he had started running something called the Wilderness School and he had like apprentices that would come and they were always on different schedules and we were sitting around one day and I would work with him. Uh, uh, but then we said, how oh, wouldn't it be cool if all the like apprentices were on the same schedule? You know, it was like a longer term thing, a couple of months. And then we could do some really cool stuff, some cool trips. And we said, yeah, let's try that. So 
thankfully we were young and stupid and didn't realize how long it would take and how hard it would be. So we just jumped in it. We didn't know any better. Like no, there was no, there was no model. Like nobody was doing anything like that. So we got like an outward bound catalog, I think through the mail. Mm-hmm. And we were like, Oh, they have a 12 week thing. Let's make ours 12 weeks. And we're like, yeah, all right. And uh, yeah, we'll go do this. We'll go do that. We'll go do this. We'll, you know, teach all these skills. And it's like, yeah, okay, cool. And I think the very first one we did, we had five students and it was, yeah, super life-changing, empowering. And I was like, yep, this is cool. Because what you're able to do with people on a longer course is it's orders of magnitude greater than on a shorter course. Like a shorter course, if we get together for a weekend, it's usually sort of a show and tell. I'm the all-seeing expert. It's like, here's how you do this, and here's a bow drill, and here's this. And then everybody's like, wow, that's so cool. And um but, you know, a longer-term program, it's a whole different animal where the, you know, the onus is passed to the student to really master all the material. And it's not about, you know, wow, look at how cool the instructor is. It, it's nothing like that. As, as you know now, having had this experience, yeah. <laughs> it's all about, uh, you know, it's, but it's also much more challenging. You know, if there are interpersonal conflicts, you have to deal with them. You know, people get sick. People get homesick. People get tired. People get fatigued. People get injured. And it's all like you know, trying to manage all those things there. There's if to use like a juggling analogy, there's a lot of balls in the air on a long, on a long program. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so we started those 2001, 2002, and then every year since then. And do you still do, it was 12 weeks that you started? It used to be 12 weeks. We had more infrastructure when we did 12 weeks in New Hampshire as well. And then when we moved up here, people run out of gas faster because everything is outside, right? There's no like heated work i mean we had a heated workshop and stuff like that and dang uh, you know and then but up here it's just you're just outside all the time and uh, but i do think that the experience up here is more powerful it's more authentic it's more real it's more visceral because you're actually out doing it all the time living it it's not like oh i'm a little chilled let's go in the workshop and light a fire in the wood stove and you know carve or something it's like well it's a lot harder to accomplish those things so it's a much more authentic i think backcountry experience just the there's just less infrastructure here there's there's you know it's 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 less things are done for you less yeah so it's more authentic because you're in the woods the whole time yeah um you know now the the field school is getting the first couple of semesters here at the field school were like pretty bare bones like everybody instructors were all living in little dome shelters that we built and yeah you know the only dry spot was under a tarp and uh you know, but it, I mean, that's the life that you live on the trail. So it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. And even a tiny little dome shelter, you chuck a wood stove in it and all of a sudden it's 120 degrees and, you know, it's great. It's, it's, it's easy. And you realize like, Hey, you know, we don't need to have cabins or fancy buildings or modern buildings. Like we can do perfectly fine with a, you know, a few well-chosen pieces of gear, axe, knife, saw, little wood stove, some way to vent the pipe through the shelter wall. Yeah, it's no big deal. You can live pretty cush, pretty comfy, pretty cush. So is your favorite way to light a fire the hand drill? Or do you mm, have a favorite? I don't know if I have a favorite. I mean, we do so much with matches here just out of practicality that, you know, the five stages of fire, the ignition, establishment, maintenance, application, extinguish. So the ignition strategies, you know, I love I love the traditional bow drill, hand drill, flint and steel. Um, you know, if you were going to do one that you would carry with you all the time, a little magnifying glass lens, like little flat ones that fit in a wallet, because it's so easy. Mm-hmm. 
but you know it's hard enough to light a fire here when it's wet all the time with a match so to to require everybody else to uh light fires strictly with friction or percussion or things like that is it's a stretch <laughs> you know i'd love to run and christopher and i've been talking about running like some advanced uh sort of primitive living experiments mm. Where, yes, we are not having a backup. No backups. No safety. If you don't get a Baudreau fire going, you don't get a fire going. Like, you know, and I think that that's a great motivation. And when I was getting started, we did that. We had this, I did this 30-day primitive camp out in Alaska. I'm like, yeah, if you don't get a Baudreau fire going, like, uh uh-uh. No backups. You did a 30-day Alaska. When was? 1995. So this was before Jack Mountain. Yes. So Jack, when I started teaching at Jack Mountain, I had been busy at it for about 10 years learning. Okay. So I didn't like, you know, I didn't jump into being an instructor right away. You got to put in your time sort of thing. What was that a part of the Alaska trip? Uh, I had just met some people that were super motivated to do that and, and we did it. Learned some awesome lessons, some things that were unexpected. You know, I went into that thinking it's all about the hard skills, but in any sort of remote living situation, it's all about the soft skills. It's all about the people skills. And that was the biggest challenge and the biggest learning that I derived from that experience was like, you know, and again, Ben Spencer sort of coined the phrase here, one of our instructors, but in the long term, in the long run, the only survival skill that really matters is our ability to get along with one another. You know, all the other stuff you can figure out, right? You can get better at spinning a drill. You can get better at bow drilling. You can increase your speed, power, friction. You can become more fit and do it better, faster. But if the people you're with, everybody's having like a, you know, everybody hates each other, like life sucks. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the soft skills are everything in an expedition or a sort of long-term living experiment. pretty cool i didn't know you did stuff like that yeah and we hope to i mean that was a that 30-day primitive living thing that was a huge experience for me that was like you know if you if you what would be an analogy i don't know that's like my that was my sort of coming of age with bushcraft skills they didn't call it bushcraft back then i did because i had morris kahansky's book northern bushcraft and (laughs) and graves's book bushcraft from australia so i I liked the term and no one used it so i was like yeah we'll call this jack mountain bushcraft and since then the term has totally jumped the shark but you know i'm stuck with it you know 20 22 years of running this business and online so now i'm stuck with it and you know whatever i'll stick with it uh, but everybody thinks, you know, bushcraft these days is all about like buying stuff and fancy knives, fancy pants. You got the right kit for bushcraft and you got the right outfit and like it's all bullshit. <laughs> but yeah, I'm sort of stuck with it. So I'll, I'll tough it out for a few more years. Oh, gosh. Um, let's see. You have a huge pile of wood out there. When did you start? collecting all your firewood the my winter wood out there your winter wood i got it from a local guy in town oh really yeah (laughs) okay i don't have time here to do everything that i want to do like when i'm here i'm here like really here for the support of the students and to run the courses in 10 years i've probably i spent less than seven days less than a week over 10 years the field school where i'm not actively running a program or cleaning up right at the end of one or prepping for one that starts tomorrow 
So when I have a few days off, I go home uh, and be with my kids and stuff. And, uh, you know, I would love to, you know, in my, in my dream, I could have the sort of Dick Prennicky existence here and get up in the morning and go down and fly fish for an hour and then hunt mushrooms for an hour and go looking for tracks and check a trap line and, mm-hmm. you know, be walking around with a combo gun. So if I see something during hunting season, I have a shotgun and a rifle and, you know, everything, you know, plan little trips where I could go to some remote lake and fish. But, you know, the reality of the job for me to do this and make a living at it, it's not, you know, I'm not out on the river by myself casting a dry fly and like picking where I'm going to go with the canoe. I'm running programs and supporting students constantly here. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's the job. It's still a great job, but it is a job. And, you know, if it was just me, if it was just Tim doing what Tim wanted on a whim, you know, I think I'm going to get up and make a pack basket today. And, you know, like, I don't, I don't have time to do any of that. So, so yeah, I bought the firewood from a guy in town because it would take it, it would, you know, put that up with a chainsaw and everything. That would be a couple of days anyway. And again, over 10, 10 years, I've had seven days here to sort of chill and fart around and do what I want. I mean, not including weekends, but weekends are like decompress yeah. from the week. And cause it's, I mean, as you know, having been here, it's a it's a long day. It's mm-hmm. a there's a lot that goes into to making this thing run, and at the end of the day, like I don't have the brain power to like I could just sit here and like flick at a piece of lint for an hour because <laughs> my brain is goo at that point in the day. Yep. So and especially you've seen also that for both Christopher and I, we put on a persona to make the class run, mm-hmm. and for me, it's sort of a high energy, really jokey, really full of puns, you know. But it, but it's it's not an act. But it's definitely not like, you know, I don't have that sort of energy just if I'm just sitting around by myself. Yeah. Like, you know, you sort of get all wound up to, to facilitate the program. And that's the, you know, it's almost the character that you meet when you come here as a student, you know, sort of real high energy. You're always sort of trying to keep everybody's energy up because really what you're doing, you're managing. you're managing. And as the instructor here, you're managing a lot of things. You're managing like the, the, the instruction on the specific things that we're doing that day. But you're also managing, you're watching everybody, you're watching their energy level, you're watching their interest in certain things. So like, and you're seeing, if you are sort of announcing what we're doing and and you don't see a glint of interest in anybody's eye, like uh, maybe we're not doing that, right? Like, (laughs) I don't want to try to drag like, you know, a a group of people through making a brown ash pack basket when they have no interest because it's going to be hard labor for like four days of just pounding a log, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, so, so you're, you're managing those things energy levels interest levels you know instructional content it's it's a lot of balls in the air so at the end of the day you're pretty you're pretty tired but anyway yeah it's i i love it i I still am excited and tickled to death that i get to do this for a job um but it's still a job right it's still hard work you know the the people stuff is the hard stuff it always it always has been probably from the first member of our species that sort of slithered out of the ooze to now it's you know getting along in the group is always the hard part mm-hmm. that the maybe not for everybody but for most people you know and if you don't want to deal with people you probably like lock yourself in a basement write software code or you know some other thing where it's like you and a machine or you as a craftsperson but if you know if you're a craftsperson trying to sell your crafts you're still having to deal with customers and you know all those things and and Again, in the long run, the only skill that really matters is our ability to get along with one another. That everything else can be learned or improved. 
uh, I don't know how I feel about if you can. Part of me thinks that soft skills are sort of cemented in you by the time you're a toddler, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you play with other kids? How do you get along with others? And, you know, having that empathy for caring about what the other person is feeling and going through. Mm -hmm. Because I've met people in my life that don't have that. And I I don't think if you don't have it, I don't think it can be learned. I think it's one of those sort of foundational things that you learn before your brain is fully developed when you're a toddler. I didn't have the same empathy for people who deal with chronic pain as say I do now, five years later, since my chronic pain kicked up. I think there's a lot of learning. I definitely a lot of learning. But I mean your outlook changed because of your personal situation changed. Mm -hmm. Your experience led you to have a different outlook. Right. And that I think is a different animal than if you hadn't had that experience and you took like a course on how to be more empathetic with people with chronic pain, mm. I don't think the outcome would be the same as that you have now having experienced that. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I mean, toddler. I, well, that's my personal take on <laughs> okay. it. And I don't think those things are cemented in being a toddler, right? Mm. I mean, you can definitely learn to be a better listener. You can learn to... to communicate better all those things that are the soft skills Mm -hmm. but i just think that caring and just you know for the lack of a better term for giving a fuck is sort of you know cemented as your in your in your very early youth Mm. pet theory untested probably (laughs) wrong what else you got teaching other people bow drills what's something that you've said you'd say you've noticed overall about either their experiences or your experience with nobody going into it nobody thinks it'll be hard but it's like hard physical work Mm -hmm. you know to be successful at it over and over i treat it like a sport treat it like an aerobic exercise um and form really matters you know all these there's every everything matters with it that if you sort of half-ass one aspect of it, it's not going to work. And especially if you're just beginning, like there are probably muscle groups that you don't use a lot, that nobody uses until they do this. It's like a specific musculature for this task. So like you have to build up to being good at it. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed just more in general that people that are usually pretty good athletically um, and have a lot of success maybe academically are the worst people because if they don't succeed right away, if they don't immediately achieve success, then they get so frustrated that it's almost better to, you know, somebody who doesn't expect to be the star or, you know, the best player or whatever, because they're willing to put in the work. Mm-hmm. That sometimes the people that are used to being very successful get more frustrated faster because maybe they don't get that success right away. Mm-hmm. The fire gods make you work more. <laughs> it's got an itch on my leg. Is there a specific way you like to use them or build tires in them? Uh, Anything like that? No. Um, so I break it down. We've got several types. We've got the you know the permanent stoves in the cabins here, and then mm-hmm. the stuff I was talking about are more trail stoves that you bring with you. You know, like on the winter winter trips and stuff. Are they a lot smaller? They're not much smaller. They're a lot lighter. Okay. So I've got like the one in the library is a trail stove. It's for a big tent. I don't ever never taken that one on the trail. It's too big for my sleds, too wide. But a friend of mine in Minnesota, Don Cavellis, figured out how to make wood stoves out of titanium 25 years ago. 
So the whole stove with the pipe weighs 12 pounds. So it's super light and it doesn't corrode. I have stoves that I've used for 20 years. This is, this is the 20th year and they're still going because the, it's like 1200 times less corrosive than stainless steel. So they don't rot out. Mm-hmm. So they're super expensive. They weren't, when he started selling them, they were like 350. So I bought two of them that first year. And then the, I guess the Chinese bought all the titanium off the world market. And then now they're like a grand. Um, but they, uh, yeah, super light. They don't rot out. Easy to, easy to heat a shelter. So yeah, that's a, a stove is a total game changer in the cold weather. Like if you're trying to make a go of it in the woods in front of an open fire, even if you have an open fire in a shelter, you're number one, breathing combustion gases. Number two, venting the combustion gases is a lot more challenging. Number three, you're going to burn through way more fuel. Number four, if your fuel isn't perfect, it's going to smoke more. You know, number there's just so many reasons why a stove is just, it just makes life so much better. But the biggest is that you use between a third and a fifth of the amount of wood that you would use in an open fire to heat a similar size place. So open fires, the only way to moderate them is by changing the fuel, adding fuel, subtracting fuel, changing the spacing of the fuel. So open fires are fuel moderated. In a stove, in a good stove, uh, it's oxygen moderated. So you can control the size of the fire by closing down the air intake or opening it up. Whereas in an open fire, the only way you can have that sort of control is by adding more wood. And then you're just burning through wood so fast and... You know, if you want to get really good at swinging an axe and using a saw, go go live in a go live in like a teepee with an open fire for the winter, right? Because you'll just be cutting wood four or five hours a day every day. <laughs> you'll get real freaking good at it fast. I mean, you still get good at it, you know, using a stove, but you're not having to cut as much. Um, and the beauty of the trail stoves is because you take them down and move them, you can just bang the pipe together and all the creosote comes out, so you never have chimney fires and. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, whether it's in a tent, like a canvas tent like we have, or a shelter, like the little wood stove in cold weather, it's a total, it's a necessity to live well, I think. I mean, I've been in some good open fire shelters, but there's like, again, the world thinks it's simple, just build a shelter and put a fire in it, but there's so much physics that goes into it, and it's so much like trial and error with that specific shelter, and where's your air intake? You know, how long, how high is the the vent of the shelter from where the fire is for your, you know, your thermal column and all this and all these things. And, you know, there's just a lot that goes into it. How do you shrink that distance? How do you how do you do all these things? And uh, a stove just makes life easier and better. Yeah, when we were doing the open fire night, me and Nick were sharing and he was staying warm. So I started adding wood on my side to see if it would burn up and coal up. But I realized later that I probably should have added the wood on his side so I'd get the coals to form and radiate it my way Yeah. a bit more. Because I was getting cold while he was still warm. But there's no way to learn that by, but by doing it, right? Yeah. Like, you could read 10 books on sleeping in front of an open fire shelter with no blanket. But going and doing it once is worth, it's worth reading 20 books. So a lot of the, I mean, a lot of the things that we do here are sort of, organized around that principle that it doesn't matter how much you think you know before you go do it when you go do it you're going to really learn and then you'll know and you don't have to take anybody's word for it because there's a lot of crappy information out there now sort of put forth by people who haven't done it but almost claim they have you know in the in the sort of youtube internet world 
you know, lots of quote unquote instructors have no field time. So yeah. it's who do you trust, right? And ultimately the person you want to trust is yourself because you've done it and you've been there. That's, I mean, that's the special sauce, the sort of Jack Mountain big secret is get people to do things and then they'll have experience doing it and then they'll know. <laughs> and then you don't have to lecture at them, like, because all that in the end, like, who cares? Who cares what you're interpreting? You know, go do it and then you'll know. And then you don't have to take anybody's word for it. It sounds simple and it is simple, but I think there's, there's a lot, there's a lot to that. And yeah. it's something that's not common in the modern world is to people to physically go and do it. Like, you want to know what it's like to go paddle a hundred miles? Let's go paddle a hundred miles. You want to go, you know what it's like to, to kind of survive in the woods when all you have is a fire? Let's go spend the night in front of the fire. Because at the end of that experience, like you've got wisdom, which is knowledge put into action that you can't get any other way. Like you can't get it from someone else. You still can't plug your plug like a USB drive into your head and download thoughts and experience, right? It's probably coming, but can't do it yet. Still got to go. Still got to go do it. And to me, that's a benefit, not a curse. Like I love that because of all the posers out there in the world now, like, you know, ask them, how many nights have you spent in front of the fire? And they'll probably lie but you can once they start explaining it and talking about how they do it you can see right away like you know mm. you, you don't call them out on it but you can sort of tell like yep they're lying they didn't they didn't do it or maybe they did it and it was the coldest it got was like 70 degrees or something at night because they were somewhere horribly warm and that's the beat like you've done it now you've done all these things so now you can sort of kick back put your feet up and you know listen to everybody sort of boastfully tell their tales and you sort of like nope there's no way that person actually did that or or yeah they probably did you know bludgeoned their way through it but that's the beauty of experience there's a lot i still have to think about with fire making there's a lot to it yeah because there's some things that i just start picking up that i don't even think about doing anymore so i've been trying to deconstruct that with this project and I was hoping that maybe do you have any ways that you can deconstruct your own process with fire building just how you do stuff uh for bow drills bow drill well like you learned it's always either the establishment stage is always a twig bundle if there's one available and if not it's going to be feathers feather sticking Mm -hmm. um but I try to do it as fast and dirty as I can and the biggest, you know, the biggest lesson for any fire lighting is always be five, three to five fires ahead. Like, I'll never wait for that rainy morning to actually go and say, oh, I need to go now collect wood to make a fire. Like, nope. If we got into camp the night before, I'd have gathered it then. So it'll be dry. Old guide trick, never wait till you need it. Always be a few ahead. And life's just easier then. I've heard that called the possum mentality, where you pick up stuff. Possum? Possum mentality, where you pick up stuff. I don't think we have possums around here. That's probably, yeah, I'm in Maine right now. Yeah, northern Maine. You're in the county. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of clever nicknames for it, but I think Mm -hmm. it's just being planning ahead. That's why it's always good if you see, like, an old guy or girl who's been doing something a long time, they're a good person to go talk to. Because they've probably figured out all the ways that it doesn't work, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then they'll show you the easiest, straightest way. I'm super fortunate to have spent a lot of time with my Cree friends in northern Quebec. And, like, no wasted motion. 
first couple trips up there, my friend David was either out, you know, he's out snowshoeing around doing stuff. And then you'd go back and there was no pretentiousness, right? You go back, he would like literally like strip off his outer layers. And then he'd be laying down on like a big bare rug on a, on a bow floor in a tent near the stove. Just and he'd be asleep in like 30 seconds, right? <laughs> there was no like, oh, I'm going to try to look busy to impress these people. Like, nope. Uh-uh. <laughs> You're like full on 100% going after it or full on 100% sleeping. There's no, like, why bother doing anything else, right? Just a great lesson. Is David the one who made the titanium stuff? No, no. Uh, that's Don Cavellis. He's oh, a white guy from Minnesota. Great guy. Uh, David Bosom's a native Cree hunter friend of mine. Who I've been, over the last sort of 20 years, have been uh, taking people up, going out on trips and watching everything that he does like a hawk and i've learned so much from doing that right great teacher very short on words so you know if if i was like david could you explain to me how to he'd be like "Mm, no (laughs) (laughs) but you'd go and you'd watch him and a zen master too i was up there 2008 we went canoeing up there i brought a group up and one of the guys in the trip was asking him a lot of questions about how he did things in the winter because it wasn't winter he says how do you do this and I think David answered two, maybe three questions. And then he stopped and he looked at the guy and he said, the action will answer all of your questions. So he meant, if you go and do it, you'll know. And if you don't go and do it, nothing I say is going to matter anyway. So again, back to that bit about experience, right? That mm-hmm. Until you go and do it, you're not going to know. No matter what I tell you, no matter what I say, I could talk all day and all night and you could make fill 10 notebooks with shit. And you still won't know until you go and do it. So the action will answer all of your questions. And I was like, damn, Zen master too, huh, David? But by then he was already asleep. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, can't, can't stress highly enough, like finding people that actually do the, do the thing, live the lifestyle to sort of, to observe. Hugely valuable. I don't know if there's really much more I can ask you. You've wandered over a lot of stuff. I do that. It's fun to do that. Not all who wander are lost. But I'm lost as shit right now. I don't know where I am. (laughs) Are we good then? Yeah, I think that should be good. And that wraps up the interview. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Jack Mountain Bushcraft podcast and found something useful in it. I realized that the audio levels at times were kind of low, but you know, after you record stuff, there's not a whole lot you can do to fix that, especially when you're dealing with my low level of technical skill. So thanks for listening. Hope you have a great day. You have been listening to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. For more information on our professional wilderness guide training programs that are college accredited and GI Bill approved, visit us on the web at jackmtn.com.